following talk is from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Okay. <clears throat> Morning, folks. It's great to see you. Just want to add my welcome. If you're a guest, if you're our guest here today, you're so very welcome. My name's James, I lead the team here. So thrilled to see you. We're going to be continuing a series that we're in at the moment in Ephesians. We're going to be finishing off Ephesians chapter 5 today. If you have a Bible with you, if you haven't, don't worry, it will come on the screen. But before we start, I just wanted to uh, let you know about something um, which some of you may already be aware of. Uh, in a couple of weeks' time, on Sunday the 17th of July, we had originally intended that we would be gathering across, uh, to all together as one church from across our different meetings, across, across our different venues. If you're a guest here today, we have a venue here in Sidcup with morning and evening meetings and a venue down the road in Eltham. And on the 17th of July, we were going to be gathering all together uh, for an all-together meeting. We've done that for the last couple of years, and uh, we kind of just, I, I really believe in them. I really feel it's a real important thing for us, and as a church going forward, Forward, uh, we will endeavor to do this. We'll just kind of work out exactly the, some of the practicalities of how often. I think it's an important moment for us as a church in terms of unity, just as one church, also cast some vision and, and just to celebrate all that God is doing. So I'm really uh, for it. Some of you know that there's a but coming here. And uh, the but is that on the 17th of July, unfortunately, we have, te- well, not unfortunately, we have made the decision that we're not actually going to gather together as, uh, as an all-in-one meeting. Um, part of the reason for that is just some practicality things. The venue that we had uh, kind of managed to secure. We had some difficulties getting hold of a venue that we felt was suitable. And the one that we eventually managed to secure was the other side of Kidbrook and was quite far out and wasn't ideal in a number of different ways. And there's just a huge, as you can imagine, uh, running a venue meeting all together, there's a huge amount of setup. It takes an awful lot of time, effort, and frankly money. And uh, we just felt in terms of where we're at right now as a church, uh, doing that and the venue, which was, to be honest, if you live that side of Sidcup anyway, that way is absolutely miles and miles and miles away from you. And we just felt that it probably wasn't the wisest thing to do. So we are not going to be meeting all together on the 17th of July. I know that uh, for some that's a great disappointment. And for others, well, frankly, you're like, yay, good. And, uh, and uh, if, you, if you are pleased that we're not all gathering together on the 17th, then good for you. And if you think that's a terrible decision, then welcome to Ephesians chapter 5, which is all about submission to authority. So uh, <laughs> we'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> I'm only joking. Um, we, uh, we will endeavor to do this going forward. I just, I've, yeah, I've said to you loads of times, listen, we'll be honest when we make a mistake and we're honest when we've done things good and, and we think it's a good thing and we just haven't m- managed to bring it together. So rather than do something that means not everyone's there, we're not going to bother. And uh, so we will meet as normal on the 17th of July here. And I know something, oh man, that's my week, I'm on this, I was looking forward to doing something else and being in, sorry about that, but we will do it as we go forward on the 17th. So what we'll do is we'll meet normally, uh, if, you, if this is your normal meeting, come here, and then the plan is, and obviously great British weather, who knows, but the plan is, is that we will go and have a picnic together somewhere for those who are able to in the afternoon, bring the Elton venues, the evening guys as well, and come along, and we'll let you know about that next week, and uh, what the exact details of where and when, okay, so that's on the 17th. Following Sunday, I appreciate notice center. 
central. This is not very exciting. But following Sunday, the 24th of July, is when we launch our summer series. Okay? So if you've been around for more than a year, you'd know that we do things slightly different in the summer. And we're going to do exactly the same again. We felt that we hit a formula last year that worked really well for us in the summer, that blessed our kids' team workers, gave them a break, blessed our families, that they could actually engage together rather than parents feeling really awkward about having kids in worship and running around and blessed everybody who doesn't have kids by thinking, thank goodness we don't have to be in worship with them all running around and going crazy. So on the 24th, we're going to start a new series called God Is. We're going to address a whole bunch of things for about six different weeks. And uh, what's the implications for you here in Sidcup is that what we'll do in the morning is it will be like a kids' meeting. So aimed, like, exactly like last year, aimed at kids. So if your kids are in the kids' meetings at the moment, it's going to be aimed at families worshipping together at kids, interactive stuff, some messy play, all that kind of different stuff. And if you think, oh, I haven't got kids, but that sounds amazing, you're so welcome to come and uh, join in. But for everyone else, we'll be meeting at 6 o'clock for an evening meeting, as we do currently, worship and, and, and preach with no kids' work. And uh, if you think, well, actually, I'd really rather stay in the morning, well, Elton will be meeting at 11 o'clock as well, and you're so welcome to go across, across there for a few weeks in the summer and check out how things are, are going on over there. So we'll talk more about that over the next few weeks. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5, the juicy stuff. <laughs> We are into the whole thing of submission and headship and all this kind of stuff that there's a whole bunch of people grinning going, what's he going to say? Woo! Well, what I'm going to say is I'm going to try and unpack what we think, feel that the Bible teaches. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're actually going to be starting in verse 21, which cuts right across the middle of a sentence. And it's really important to understand in, in all of this what has just come before. So if you were here last week, we unpacked what it is to be filled with the Spirit and the result of that is how we how we live and result we focused on singing last time round but also how when we filled with the spirit then we're giving thanks for everything and in all situations and circumstances and then submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ and it's not like last week was a completely separate thing be filled with the spirit that's all that stuff and then this week now you must do this and behave like this it's it's not like there's a distinction Paul is is really opening up the whole thing be filled with the spirit these are some of the implications of it submitting to one another and then he begins to address over these next few verses some of which we'll look at today and then into chapter 6 how this works works itself out in the context of different relationships, how it works out within marriage in these verses that we'll be looking at today, and then into parenting, and then into like work context, how that kind of submission thing, submitting to one another, and, and the different roles we have takes place in different contexts, marriage, parenting, work context. So it affects all of us. Let's read it. Submitting to one another, verse 21, out of reverence for Christ, the tasty stuff. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast 
to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for the reminders we've already had in this meeting already of who you are and your faithfulness and your goodness to us and that you're working everything together for the good of those who love you. Thank you that that is not separate from what we're about to look at now. Holy Spirit, would you just awaken our hearts and our minds and our souls and our spirits to what you want to speak to us about today. I pray we'd walk out of this place strengthened in you. I pray we'd walk out of this place having encountered you in spirit and in truth. And we'd be a responsive people, not conditioned by anything other than your word, not conditioned by anything other than what you have for us, the good plans that you have for us. So we just invite you now. Thank you that you're already here with us. We believe that by faith. It's not some wishy-washy, airy-fairy, touchy-feely thing. Believe by faith that you're alive, you're a good God, and you're with us. Come and help us in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I've taken the bubbles out this week, I'm fine. That was a joke from last week when I nearly choked to death on stage and you all just laughed at me. But there we go. Okay, so here's the thing. There are all sorts of bits in the Bible which clash massively with the prevailing culture in which we live. There's all sorts of bits which you read and go, ah, well, that's okay in here, but if I go into work on Monday morning and go, let me tell you something, I'm going to get shouted down. And submission, let's be honest, is one of those things. Submission in our culture, well, in a, when I say our culture, what I'm meaning is a pre- predominantly Western kind of uh, non-religious culture, okay? The secular culture within which we live, all right? It's a dirty word in that context. And so we have kind of a whole bunch of choices, really, when faced with passages like this. And you can, uh, this isn't just relevant to this bit. This is relevant to all the different passages in Scripture which seemingly clash with, with what the world says. And we have, I guess, four different, object, four different things that we can do. The first, when we get a passage like this, is we can completely reject it. We can absolutely say, no flipping way. We are not having anything to do with that. And to be honest, that is the, the common response in, in 21st century London to the most common response to people out there who do not believe in God, who do not believe that the Bible holds any authority, who do not believe in that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. This is the common response. Reject it. This is the 21st century. How out of date. How so utterly sexist. How so utterly repressive. How so utterly outrageous and ridiculous is this idea that wives should submit to their husbands. How Backward are you? That might be appropriate like generations and generations and generations ago. But how unbelievably nonsensical is that right here and right now? And here's the thing. When you get that response from people, you've got to understand that for if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, if you don't place any kind of trust in Jesus Christ or in his authority and his word, then what the word of God says is neither here nor there to you. Because you don't trust it, you have, it has no authority for you, and so there's no question with what you do with it. If you like what it says, love everybody, oh, that's a good thing, yeah, we'll embrace that. Do this, no chance. You're not trying to submit your life to the authority of the word of God, and so if you like it, embrace it. If you don't, reject it. It's not the way we handle things here. 
Like any piece of scripture, when what the word of God says clashes with our contemporary thoughts, our approach as Christians, those who are, who are seeking to align ourselves with the will of God, the word of God, and, and his calling upon our lives, our approach is this. This thing, this, this Bible here, this word, has authority. It's the word of God. And he's good. He's a good God. And so his word, believe, is life-giving and and life-changing. And therefore, because he's good and it's his word, this must be for my good. So I want to approach passages like this. I I want to wrestle with it. I want to understand it. I want to, at the end of it, submit myself to it and line up my life in line with what it says and its authority. On this particular issue of, of marriage, for example, we might also want to look at the world and say, well, how, how, how's things going by the way you do things? And we might kind of look and say, well, actually, divorce rates are higher than they've ever been, and, and there's this and that, and chaos in family, and all the rest of it. I'm not so sure that rejecting all of this stuff has resulted in anything that's particularly wonderful. So I'm not sure I really want to go that way. Now, I'm not saying that we, we in the church are any better than people out there. We're really not. But when we align ourselves to the word of God, there's something different. The end result is something, or it should be, something different to what we see in the culture around us. So we can reject it. Second thing we can do is we can abuse it. Which, to be honest, is the complete other extreme. And I'll be really honest with you, sadly, throughout our Christian history, a lot of people have abused this. And to be honest, some of you sitting in a room of this size, a whole bunch of you will have been on the receiving end of being abused by this. And in this kind of abusing this piece of scripture, what happens is that submission becomes entirely one way. And so it's kind of taught or, or implied or brought in this kind of a sense of that women are to submit to men in every situation, in every context, and do exactly what they say to them. And so this, when you do that, when you abuse this, what you're doing is you're taking this bit of scripture and you're saying Paul's telling women that they need to submit to their husbands and even submit, sometimes submit to all men, which means they have to do everything that their husbands tell them, no matter how wrong or odd or stupid or abusive or controlling that husband might be. I heard Andrew Wilson talk on this a few years ago, and he used an illustration which I found so helpful, so I'm going to nick it in. And he's kind of saying that kind of idea is this idea of, of, it's like a picture of the husband and wife in such a way as like the relationship between my brain and my foot. My foot has no control over anything itself. It does exactly what my brain says it to do. So if my brain says, do that and look stupid, it can say, well, I look like an idiot, but I've got nothing to do here. I'm just, my brain is in concrete control. My foot has to do everything my brain says. Even if my brain tells my foot to repeatedly kick the wall until it breaks, it can, it can kind of go, well, that sounds really stupid, but I've got no choice. Bang, 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 bang. And that's the picture of this abusive, upside down, backwards, completely unbiblical response. Men are in charge. Women have to do whatever they say, no matter how stupid. It's highly distorted, highly wrong, highly abusive, horrible, completely unbiblical picture of a husband and wife relationship. And even, like, no one actually goes, well, some people do, sadly, but many people wouldn't go to that extreme. They're like, yeah, but at the end of the day, she still has to do what I say. No, no. Yeah, but scripture says she still has to do everything I say. No, no. No, it doesn't. This is not what Paul's saying at all. And we know this is not what Paul's saying because of his words in this passage, but also because of what he says elsewhere. So in 1 Corinthians 7, when he's talking about sex in marriage, he says, husbands have authority over a wife's body, 
He also says wives have authority over a husband's body. Huh. And when he says things like that, you've got to understand the world in which he lived, that was a very unusual thing to say. People didn't talk like that. But actually, there's this real sense of mutuality in a marriage, according to Paul. So we can't reject it. Definitely cannot abuse it. The other thing, the third thing that people often do is what we might describe as invert it. Well, it says this, but really what it means is this. And so they'll say things along the lines, well, of course Paul is right. And we'll do exactly what Paul says. Paul means for both husband and wife to do that in exactly the same way. They would argue, of course, wives are to submit to husbands, but in exactly the same way that husbands are to submit to wives. And so they'd say there's absolutely no distinction. There's no difference in role and the way in which that submission works itself out. And so the logical extension of inverting it is to say that there's no such thing as leadership in marriage. There's no such thing as authority in the home. There's no such thing as headship at all. Husband and wife are exactly the same. There's no difference in their function, no difference in their role, no difference at all, except for the fact that a wife has, a, uh, has or the potential to bear children. Other than that, everything else is exactly the same. And just to extend that illustration from before, it's a bit like the nostrils working together. They're identical. They work exactly the same. They do the same thing. They've got exactly the same function. No differentiation. They can do the same things. They can't do the same things. It's not like you can say to one nostril, you smell that half of the room, and nostril, you smell that half of the room. It's like, uh, we just do it all. It's like, wherever you go, it's exactly the same. No differentiation. The problem with that view is saying there's absolutely no difference is that You have to ignore an awful lot of what Paul's saying here. Like literally, you have to pretend he didn't write it. Paul speaks clearly here about the responsibilities of the woman, the wife, being like the way the church submits to Christ, and the responsibilities of the man or the husband being like the way Christ loves the church. And we'll address this more fully in a moment, but men and women in a marriage represent, or they image, or they they picture, if you like, what Christ and the church are like. And Christ and the church are different. Different. They have different ways of expressing their service, different ways of expressing their love towards one another. So we don't want to invert it either. So the fourth option we have is to embrace it. And this is the position that we would hold here as a church. In fact, this is the orthodox Christian position that for a few thousand years, pretty much all Christians have always held to, and plenty parts of the, many parts of the world still do so. It's only in a, in a Western mindset that in the la- relatively short period of history, the church has begun to change its teaching on some of these things. And our culture very, very strongly challenges this view, and it might not like it, but Paul is really very clear. Verse 21, wives and husbands do submit to one another. But that submission works itself out in different ways, depending upon if you're a husband or if you are a wife. And some say, oh, well, it's as a result of the fall. God created it when the fall came. No, no, no. Because Paul quotes Genesis 2 here, which is pre-fall. Paul is, is, is arguing back to the created order, to God's original design. And if we had time, we would spend a whole lot of time unpacking what that is. But in a nutshell, because we don't really have all that much time, and it's not the primary focus, there's an equality in terms of our worth. We are equal in worth, male, female, equal in worth, and yet different in function. Okay? This could get real awkward. So who are you looking for? <laughs> Marcia, sorry. 
Everyone going, is it me? Is it me? Every parent, why don't we all just run out? No. Equal in worth, different in function. And what our culture just cannot cope with, and some of you possibly in this room are going to struggle with what I'm about to say, what our culture cannot cope with is that equality does not mean the same. As in, identically the same. See, biblically speaking, and Paul is really, really clear here, we, we can and we do have equality in terms of worth. Galatians 3, there's neither male nor female. It doesn't literally mean there's no more gender. It means in Christ, in salvation, there is not a distinction. Well, some are saved and some are not. No, no, no. In Christ, we have eternal worth together. Intrinsic value comes from the fact that we're made in the image of God. Male and female, he made them. And so our worth, our value comes from that. In Christ, there is not a kind of, well, some are better than others. No, 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 no. We are equal in worth, but how we then function, how we express the roles are different. Equal and yet not the same in terms of our function and our roles. Again, using body illustration, I think about my hands, okay? There is clear equality between my hands. One hand is not better than the other. It would be a ludicrous thing to go, well, my left hand is just far superior. It looks prettier. It's everything's... No, no, no. My hands are equal. And yet, my right hand is, does slightly different things to my left hand because I'm right-handed. It takes a lead in certain things, and my left hand takes a, a lead in certain things. And it's like this, this picture. It doesn't mean that my right hand is better than my left hand. Well, you can write, and you can't. Okay? And nor does it mean when my right hand's sitting there, my left hand gets up. It's like, what are you doing? Get down. No, no this, that would be utterly ludicrous. It's like, just sit over there and be by yourself. No, no, that's not the way my hands work. It's like they work together. Now, it's a slightly inadequate picture, I accept. There's all sorts of holes in it. You can pull it apart and go, well, hang on a minute. What's that? That's stupid. But hopefully in some way, shape, or form, it's slightly helpful as an illustration because marriage is intended to be the two hands with equality but different roles. And the service that they give to each other isn't identical, but it is mutual. Equal partners. But function differently and have different responsibilities. So we don't want to be a church, a bunch of people as we pursuing scripture and if you're a guest here today you need to understand that everything we're trying to do in this church we're not perfect nowhere near perfect we get all sorts of things wrong but everything we're trying to do is trying to line up with what scripture says so you can say well hang on a minute what was that thing in worship where she seemed to speak in a funny language and then someone came and spoke in English what's well, called tongue and interpretation you might think that's a bit odd but you can look at it in terms of scripture and go okay I see why they're trying to do that So we want to be that in everything, not just in terms of our worship meetings, but in the way in which we function as a church. So we don't want to reject it. We definitely don't want to abuse it. There are serious consequences, I believe, for people who abuse the word of God in the name of Christ. We will stand before the judgment seat one day. And when we abuse it and we trample over and use it to our own ends or our own means, there's a consequence for that. I believe that. We don't want to do that. And we don't want to invert it and just read what we want. Well, make it sound like that. Let's just twist that. And hey, no, 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 we don't want to do that. We really want to be a people who embrace it. And so if we do that, we've got to be really clear on what's going on here. First thing we've got to be clear on is marriage. This passage actually isn't about marriage. Now, it has a load of implications for marriage, but you're sitting here and you're not married, thinking, well, it's nothing to do with me. No, no, no. This passage is, is not actually about marriage. Of course, there are big implications, but this is a passage actually about Jesus. 
We're intended to see in this passage how Jesus loves us, who he is and what he has done for us, what he is doing for us and, and what he is yet to do for us in, this, in the future. And we need to be really careful that we put these verses into the whole context of Ephesians and the whole context of the word of God. You don't just jump straight in. So many people just jump straight in. Verse 22, I told you it's repressive, it's dexes. No, you've got to look at the whole thing and work out what's going on. And the main point that Paul makes in this passage is that marriage is a divine mystery pointing us to something way beyond what we see on this earth but to Jesus Christ and his bride the church it's like a sign of something gloriously eternal and magnificent and cosmically beautiful and so many people get fixated on the sign they miss the thing it's pointing to and so we spend our time do I have the perfect marriage did I marry the right person am I ever going to get married is that right is that well I'm not really sure these details and this details and this details and we miss what it's actually pointing to. It's a bit like if you're going traveling around the world to the seven wonders of the world and you're off to Grand Canyon. I, I don't even know if that's a seven wonder. If you go into the Grand Canyon and you arrive and there's like a sign that says Grand Canyon 200 miles away and you just think we made it and you sit under the sign for your whole time and then you go home. Well, we got to the sign that pointed. What are you doing, you fool? You've missed the actual thing. And when we fixate on something that is small, I'm not saying it's unimportant. We'll see that in a minute. But when we fixate on this at the expense of missing what it's pointing to, We're missing the real deal. We've got to see what this is pointing to and work out this in the context of that big thing rather than learn to do this, learn to do that. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a place for learning how to communicate better and learning if you're a hedgehog or a squirrel or a rhino or whatever it is in the the kind of books and stuff and how you do this and how you do that. But if we miss the glory of what it's all about, we're going to fixate on this. We get the glory of what it's all about. These things begin to fall into place. Marriage and family and the way we live are echoes of something greater, something eternal, something ultimate. And, and so marriage really is, if you like, just gospel reenactment. We're acting out in a small way on earth something that is cosmically grand and glorious. We're learning to love like God and learning to live like he desires for us and learning to display that to a watching world. See, the ancient view of marriage was that marriage was primarily functional. You got married because it established economic suitability and stability. It was like, well, you want kids? That's how you do it. So it's all about just being stable. Our modern view of marriage is that marriage is about romantic fulfillment. You find the person who completes you. And you gaze lovingly into your eyes and you get married and all your dreams come true. And life is incomplete until you find that happily ever after person. And Paul says in Ephesians 5 here that neither of those is the primary purpose of marriage. Christ-likeness is the purpose of marriage. You see the beauty of Christ in someone and you become part of the process of making them to be more like Jesus as you are being transformed to be more like Jesus. And God's goal for your life, whether you are single or married, is the same. Christ-likeness. Now he uses different means in our lives to get us there, but the goal is the same for everyone. Marriage then and family are just pointers to the ultimate reality. That's what Paul's saying. Marriage is like a a shadow of the most ultimate union, our union to Christ. And so our biological family is just like a pointer to our eternal family, the church. And Paul says that this is the mystery of marriage and the family. These things are, they're temporary realities. They're not unimportant, but they're temporary realities pointing to the ultimate reality. So whether or not you're in a nuclear family, whether or not you end up getting married and having 2.4 children, whether or not you ever end up getting married, whether or not you're, however you're 
your life works itself out. God's purpose in your life, if you're a Christian, is Christ-likeness. And he's using different means to get there. God's ideal, and I know this is difficult to say because lots of us in this room find ourselves in, in different situations. But God's ideal is that you are single to the glory of God or you're married to the glory of God. That's his ideal. That you remain single to the glory of God or you remain married to the glory of God. And throughout the history of the church, Christians have tended to elevate the importance of one over the other. So for the first 1,500 years of the church, singleness was considered to be the preferred state and the best way to serve Christ. So single people all sat at the front of the church and married people were all made to go to the back in meetings. And that all changed in, what? What is this? That all changed in the Reformation in about 1517 when it was reversed. It was like, well, no, 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 marriage is the preferred way. You come to the front, single people, you go to the back. Now, thankfully, we don't do that kind of segregation, but we still have, we still place too much emphasis on too much weight on one or the other. And the Bible is clear that both statuses, whether you're married or single, are weighty and meaningful. Scripture teaches us that human beings are created for intimacy. We're created for connection with God, with ourselves, and with one another. And so, so much so that in the ancient times, marriage included two events. You had your betrothal and your wedding. And during the betrothal, you were man and woman were considered husband and wife. That's what that whole Mary and Joseph thing's about. I'm going to divorce. Hang on, they're not even married yet. What's going on here? No, no, because they were betrothed to one another. But marriage was not consummated until after the wedding. And whether you're, no, hang on, how's that work? So you're betrothed, we're going to get married, you're kind of treated like that, but you've not actually had your wedding yet, so it's not been consummated yet, okay? And it's exactly the same when we become Christians. When we put our trust as Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are effectively betrothed to him. And our great eternal marriage will be consummated when we see him face to face. And so right now, whether you're physically actually married or you're single, if you're a Christian, you are betrothed to him. And there is a day coming, we heard in that beautiful song, where we will see him face to face. We will witness him. We will be changed to be like him. And that's, biblically speaking, where the consummation of marriage comes. And we need to work this out, this marriage, if you like, to Jesus, out through our secondary callings of singleness or, or marriage or whatever state you're relationship status finds itself in right now because life is complicated and things happen that we didn't plan. And so in our our church, we've got people who are single moms and we've got people who are divorcees and we've got people who are widowers and widows and we've got people who have married and people who have been married multiple times and people who have never been married and people whose relationship status is very, very complex. And listen, this needs to be worked out for each one of us. But it needs to be worked out in recognizing whatever, wherever we're at right now, our primary concern is our relationship to Jesus and our submission to him and our marriage, if you like, to him. And it works itself out secondary. So if you're finding yourself here and you're thinking, this is all about marriage, I'm not married, I'm not in this. Listen, he loves you. And his goal for you is transforming you in Christ-likeness. And whether things have worked out exactly the way you thought or hoped or didn't, that's where he's heading is to. And you've got to work out in your context, your situation, how, how do I best live my life to the glory of God? How do I best live as a single person or a married person or a divorced person or a single parent or whatever it is to the glory of God, fixing my eyes not on him, uh, not on anyone else other than him? 
Not trying to engineer and manufacture my circumstances and situations here so that I become acceptable to, to be in church and, oh, I fit in all the neat boxes. No, no, no. Forget what anyone else thinks. It's, it's what does the Lord think? Am I living my life? If I've got a non-Christian spouse, am I living? It's so difficult. And I, and I, I can empathize with you and sympathize with you and recognize that this is a real challenge. Your primary calling is not trying to establish this family unit thing so that everybody who's acceptable thinks you're now acceptable because that's nonsense. Primary thing is work out how do I live in such a way in the circumstances I am that brings glory to him and points to the fact that ultimately I'm married, if you like, to Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. So we need to, I wasn't planning on saying any of this, but I just feel a sense in this. We need need to step out of this judgmental nonsense of thinking, well, because my situation is right, theirs isn't. We need to step out of this kind of thinking, well, I've got it right. I got it married. I didn't have sex before I got married. I didn't have kids until after we got married. We did two years before we had kids and everything was right. And then look at that. And we've produced two or three or four or more kids and they're all wonderful. And so I'm, uh, that is what I'm good at because your identity is not in any of that. Your identity is found in Jesus Christ alone. And so is everybody else's. Now, there are implications if the way in which our, our marriage, our relationship thing is, does not line up with the will of God, we've got to do something about that. But our first and primary calling is to submit our lives to him. And we can be so quick to hide behind the veneer of acceptability, they think, well, I just, no one knows. So as long as we turn up holding hands each week, everything's fine. That's nonsense. You can be in the most respectable marriage and not living at all for the glory of God. And you can be in the worst situation, worldly speaking, of it all over the place. And everyone thinking, look at them. And you can be living your life exactly to the glory of God in a way that he delights in. Okay? That's a freebie. Second thing we need to get clear on is we need to get really clear on headship and submission and the nature of roles. You need to listen real carefully to what I'm about to say. Because there's so much misunderstanding on this. And you get this wrong, you can really stuff yourself up and others around you. Really. We need to understand that submission and headship, but submission is all to do with roles not gender. Submission is all to do with roles, not gender. Being a wife is a role. Being a husband is a role. Being a servant or an employee in our modern context is a role. Being a citizen in our country is a role. Being male and female are not roles. Okay. So while our biological sex, biblically speaking, while our biological sex determines, shapes the roles that we hold, so biblically speaking in a marriage, a woman will be a wife and not a husband, submission does not stem directly from gender, but from a role that exists in the context of relationship. 
Say that again. Submission does not stem directly from gender, but from a role that exists in the context of relationship. So a wife submits to her husband, not because he is a man, but because he is her husband, and he has committed himself to certain vows and duties in the context of their marriage. So when you got married and you stood before the congregation, you stood before God and you made the declaration that I will behave like this, I will honor you like this, I make a covenant, not a contract, a covenantal promise that I will treat you in such a way, in that moment as you did that, your wife then makes a vow and says, okay, as you do that, I will submit to you. Not because you're a bloke, but because you have stepped into this context, this role as a husband in this covenantal relationship and that's why I'm going to submit to you. So women generally do not submit to men generally. You're a woman, you have to submit to me because I'm a man. No, 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 no. Wives submit to husbands. So if you're a bloke and you've got a female boss, you don't just go, well, you're a woman, I'm not submitting to you. She's your boss. And in that role, in that context, she has authority over you and you are under submission to her. Now, where people have got this wrong biblically, because some of you will have sat in meetings in days gone by where you would have heard something different to that being said. No, women always submit to men, always. I just want to contend that I think that is a wrong view of Scripture. I really do. You submit to people in the context of relationship and role. So children submit to their parents because their parents have a role as a parent over them. Slaves submit to their masters, or we as in, I'm not saying that work, I know sometimes it feels like it, but your employee, you submit to your bosses because they have a role over you. Not because they're male or female, that's irrelevant, but the role dictates it. It's like citizens, and again, in our country, I totally get this, we have a right to protest and all the rest of it but citizens are supposed to submit to those in authority over them who are the government it's the context it's not to do with a male or female it's to do with the context and so it's exactly the same in church church members what is the whole thing about becoming a membership it's saying i submit to the authority of those in charge over me in the lord the leadership of church elders or pastors well, nothing to do with the gender thing in that sense to do with the rest- and it's exactly the same husband and wife. Submission happens always in the context of specific privileges and responsibilities found in specific relationships bound by specific covenants. Let me say that again. I wrote it down. I wanted to get this right. Submission happens in the context of specific privileges and responsibilities found in specific relationships bound by specific covenants. Okay? That's not just from here. As we look elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 11.3, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And as we read through the rest of Scripture, we see one day in the new heavens and the new earth that that middle bit, that the head of a wife is her husband, will not endure. It won't last for all of eternity. It will no longer be. And we know that because Jesus in Matthew 28 says, for the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. So while the categories of male and female, your gender, will last for all eternity and will endure into the new creation, the earthly roles of husbands and wives do not. There's no marriage in heaven. Don't worry, we'll be too busy glorifying Jesus and enjoying perfection to worry about that. Some of you are thinking, that sounds amazing. (laughs) But that doesn't endure. Your gender endures, okay? So this middle bit of this this submission thing is an earthly thing. Not male to female, female to male, but in the context of roles, wives to husbands. So while earthly marriages then 
And the submission that happens within them are but mere shadows of the one great marriage between Jesus Christ and his bride that will exist for all eternity. And it's his supremacy that we're told about in Philippians 2, uh, which is the direct result of his obedience to the Father. It's his supremacy which govern our relationships to each other both now and for all time. And so in this life now, husbands and wives have an opportunity to give testimony to, to declare, to show a watching world, not about the subordination of women to men, but to the eternal truth that Jesus is a bridegroom who loved his wife enough to leave his glory, descend to the earth, and fulfill his father's plan of redemption. And this is what we celebrate, and this is what we're trying to display in our marriages. Because biblically speaking, there's this beautiful dynamic at work within a Christian marriage that that demonstrates something wonderful to a watching world. That's what our marriage is. That's what our our relationships are, demonstrating something glorious to a watching world who are trying to work out how does this all work. And so they may well go, that's ridiculous. And they might caricature and mock the idea of submission, but when they see it working in reality, they can't deny it. And they might say, how dare you say that kind of thing? That's just so wrong. But when they see it working as it should do biblically, they go, wow, your marriage is amazing. I want what you've got. It seems to work. How does it work? Because it's not, well, a wife submits to a husband. Husband does whatever he wants. No, no, no. The the husband's challenge to the husband, the laid down by the word of God, is not rule your wives, it's love your wives. It's not make them submit. Nowhere at all does it say, make your wife submit or tell her. If you ever have to play the, you need to submit to me card, you've missed it by a mile. Totally missed it. I've said that before. Immediately felt the pang of, you idiot. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. What are you doing? I called you to love your wife, not to rule. Not to domineer. I called you to sacrifice everything, just as Jesus Christ laid down his life. Marriage means sacrifice. Jesus went to the cross for his bride. He sacrificed himself for her. And this is the model for our marriages. And this is so different from how people approach relationships. Let's be honest. Our culture conditions us to think about ourselves and our own happiness and our own rights. If you're unhappy in your marriage right now, if you're married, I am so bold as to say, I guarantee it's because you're thinking about yourself. We do it instinctively. We just go there. Oh, I wish he was more like this. Oh, I wish he was more like that. I wish they... Biblically, the picture here of headship and submission is love your wife. Lay down your life for her. Love her like Jesus Christ loves his bride. And as you do that self-sacrificially, as you do that in a, in a way that is so honoring of, to the glory of God first and foremost and then to your spouse, well, the submission thing comes so naturally easily because it's not about, well, I've laid down my preferences and my rights and all that kind of stuff. It's about, no, no, no. How do I serve you? It's the question we need to be asking one another. How do I serve you? How in my role as a husband do I lovingly serve you? How is my role in a wife do I lovingly serve you? Not what can I get out and what can you do and you need to change this and, and okay, I concede that bit. No, no, how can I serve you? Your marriage is your loudest gospel message. And we've got to work out, each of you, if you're married here, you've got to work it out how, how it works. I'll just tell you about how it works in our context. We are far from perfect, all right? We are... I know some of you are like, really? <laughs> we get things wrong all the time. But for us, we in our marriage recognize that we want to submit our lives to the lordship of Christ. 
We want to align ourselves with God's word. We want, to be a marriage, uh, we want our marriage to be a picture of the gospel, first and foremost to our kids. Because they're the ones who see what we're really like all the time. People say, I don't understand where my children have got all that from. <laughs> I don't understand all this bad attitude and this answering. About <laughs> have a guess. That's where I want to picture it to first. And then to a watching world. So for us, we've tried to work this out in such a way that it's not some theory, so I can preach on it every seven years that it comes around, but practical. Recognizing our unique roles, but also recognizing that we're gifted differently. Han's different from me. She's better at things than I am. I'm better at other things than she is. Some things we're equally as bad at. Some things we're pretty similar on. We're different personalities, different character traits, different what, but we've tried to work it out in such a way as this. Han always, doesn't always get it right, but endeavors to always put my will before her own. (laughs) She always puts my will before her own, endeavors to. And I always endeavor to put her interests before my own. And when she's doing that and when I'm doing that, we arrive at this place of mutually together, some into one another. Recognizing there's a responsibility within our marriage for, for me to roll, to lead. There's a responsibility on me to ensure that if, if devotional life or whatever is going, it needs to be happening in our church, in our home. There's a responsibility on me to make sure our kids are, are being raised as they are. There's a responsibility on me to ensure that we, we're sensible with our finances. Does that mean I have to do everything? Absolutely not. Han is way better at doing devotional stuff with the kids than I am. Because I sit there and I'm like, you're wrong. Why are you saying that? Let me tell you what the Bible says. <laughs> And she encourages them and brings it out in them. But if it's not happening, I can't go, well, hands just better. I dismiss it. It's nothing to do with me. No, no, no. Part of my role in leading and, and is, is to make sure that this kind of stuff is going on in our home. And as, as I do that, and as she submits, not passive, it's not silent. It doesn't mean she has to agree with everything I say. She frequently doesn't. Frequently saying, listen, I think you need to understand that you've got this wrong, James. She's good at that. That isn't even a joke. Because she needs to be, because I'm, I'm an idiot. I immediately just think of myself. I need somebody alongside me saying, no, hey, hey, it's not about you, it's about him. What are you doing? And both of us, it's not that she puts my will and I put her interest before it. What we both do is she puts the will of the Lord before anything else, and I put his interest before anything else. And when we fix our eyes on that, when we ensure that in God we're doing well together, then our marriage begins to work. And when it's not working... It's because one or usually both of us are not doing that. That's where it boils down to. It takes time. I mean, we've been married like ten and a half years. We know nothing compared to some of you guys. But this is the thing we've learned. Get thoroughly right with him. Pursue him above everything else and these things get added. And instead of fixating on this, we need to talk more. Now, we do have those conversations. We need to talk more. You need to tell me what you feel more, James. You need to be better at articulating that hand. You need to, every time I try and tell you about this, the way in which you say that just cuts me down and I'm never going to talk to you about it ever again. We do have all those conversations. Was that exposing too much? Sorry. (laughs) It is true. (laughs) But we need to remember this and live for this and this alone. The glory of the one is over all things listen you can do this folks you can do this it will start awkwardly it will move forward weirdly it's weird praying with your spouse man it is some of you are like what are you talking about it's not well I want to be like you because the rest of us it's like this is weird man 
And it gets easier and easier and easier the more you do it. Ladies, I just... Just the thing in... in Careful how I say this. It's so easy to tear down with a quick, cutting comment that wins you an argument but causes real damage. And most of us blokes, if we're really honest, are massively insecure. Massively insecure. We pretend we're not. We... And even we pretend we're not to ourselves. But we are. And there's this role in terms of loving one another and preferring one another. How can I serve you? It says, I'm going to build you up rather than tear you down. I'm going to speak positively of you, about you, rather than negatively. I'm going to, in a context where it's just me and my girlfriends, I'm going to speak well of you. I'm going to brag about you, but I'm going to speak well of you. Blokes, in a context where I'm with other guys or I'm not going to do that under the thumb, roll my eyes, yeah, she's called babe. No, I'm going to speak well of my wife. I'm going to honor her. I'm going to want to create a culture where people can mock and say, submission is so backward and so nonsense. I say, you can believe that, but look how we operate. Because I love my wife and I love my Lord. And I want to do everything I can to build something that reflects his glory, both now and forevermore. And wherever you're at, if you're married, you're single, you're divorced, you're a widow, you're thinking, I'd love to be married, you're thinking, I don't ever want to wish I wasn't married, no matter where you're at, our eyes are to be fixed on Jesus Christ. We're to live under submission to his kingly rule and his reign. And as we do that, these things get themselves worked out to the glory of God. We're going to take communion together, and we're going to do it as a moment of submitting to Christ. Now, there might be conversations you need to have. For just a little thing, blokes, you need to make sure you have these conversations. Wives, when they're ready to talk, let them talk. Might be, oh, this is the middle of the night. This is not helpful. <laughs> but fellas, seriously, I just sense some men, you need to stand up in God. It's not about, it's about, hey, Lord, I need to live for your glory and yours alone. So some changes need to happen. Exactly the same. Let's come before him now. There's all around the room. We're going to put some music on in a second. It's submitting to him first, to his kingly rule, his kingly reign. Let's be a, a company of people. Let's be a church that displays that, that lives for that. These secondary things, they're not unimportant. They're so crucially important, but they're secondary things. We work out our primary calling. It's belonging to him and him alone in the context of wherever we find ourselves, to the glory of God. Thanks for listening to this talk from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk.